A record number of employees have quit their jobs in recent months, in what's being dubbed the Great Resignation. Newspapers report that it's part of post-COVID demand for flexible working and a better work-life balance. According to a new Labor Department report, 4.3 million people quit in August. That's the highest number of people quitting on record, dating back to more than 20 years. And that's up from 4 million who walked away from jobs in June. Leading the quitters, restaurant, hotel and retail employees. 892,000 workers in food and accommodations quit in the month. 721,000 employees in retail. Many businesses are suffering from a major shortage of workers. With the 10.4 million jobs open, employers are scrambling to find help. After last year, where up to a quarter of the UK workforce was paid not to work through the furlough scheme, are we reassessing our relationship to our jobs? How does work impact our health and sense of self? And should we improve our working conditions or try to abolish work altogether? At a crisis, there's always a feeling that we should never return to the way that things were. And this, I think, is our moment, our generation's opportunity to seize this chance to say that the new world of work will be different from the old world of work. I feel like the way that we have been working should have serious improvements for our work-life balance. Spending more time with our families and not being sort of stuck in an office from nine to five and commuting and all of this. I, I hope that we, we will take that with us, that we can actually have a more flexible and, and slightly more freer life. Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. This week we're asking, is work making us miserable? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Amelia Horgan, Assistant Lecturer at the School of Philosophy and Art History, University of Essex, and author of Lost in Work. Hi, Amelia. Hiya. Thanks so much for being with us. When I was just doing that uh, intro, the is work making us miserable? I was thinking about my frantic commute back back from work to do this uh, podcast, and I was like... Maybe yes. <laughs> um, it felt very true for me. So I'm looking forward to having this conversation. People who are listening who know what I do, I love my job, but uh, it's definitely stirring up some feelings today. Let's start off by getting a sense of how work has changed over the last century, zooming out from my personal story. So in your book, Amelia, you compare the old Fordist model of work to the new, more flexible one. So can you explain what these two models are and how one of them morphed into the other one? Yeah, great. So I I guess what I'd say first of all is that they're not so much kind of totally capturing every aspect of work at those different times. They capture a kind of overall tendency. So the thing we would call Fordist work is very much this kind of um, assembly line, factory line style work. Work is mainly in one large place, sort of the uh, idea that's used to characterize it a lot is that you swap kind of boredom nine to five for evenings and weekends to yourself and within that there's also primarily kind of male workers women workers more excluded from the job market but again this isn't this isn't total and this kind of um, masks varieties of work and also the ways in which that kind of model of work depended on exploitation of women's unpaid work in the home in some cases and also the exploitation of the global south by the global north but anyway that's the kind of Fordist model um how we characterize this kind of new work is how i dub it in the book is a change more towards kind of flexibility which is presented by employers uh, by the establishment as this kind of wonderful freedom enhancing thing 
when in reality, it's kind of more flexibility for the employers than for the employees. And this isn't to say that there's a kind of, I guess, one way it's been described is as work co-opting kind of demands for freedom made in, in the 60s. And then you left taking those and saying you can get this through work. Of course, this isn't the first time that that uh, management styles have tried to win workers' hearts and minds, but it does that through a kind of discourse of freedom, self-fulfillment, self-expression, the notion of everyone being a team, a kind of masking of hierarchies while hierarchies carry on, work making really strong emotional demands on people, this sense that you must treat everyone all the time as a customer, and kind of in terms of contract as well, a reduction in the availability of permanent full-time work and the responsabilization and exposure of workers to greater and greater risk in terms of losing their job, in terms of losing protections and so on. That's really helpful. Thank you. A question on that. So I definitely kind of identify with what you're saying about this kind of shift towards a more, I guess, emotionally extractive nature of work. Part of, I guess, what sometimes the pushback to that narrative is, is that when work is something that we invariably spend perhaps the majority of our life doing, isn't it a good thing that it becomes something that we get more emotional fulfillment from or something that we can invest more of ourselves in, which perhaps collides a little bit more with our kind of wants, needs and desires outside of the workplace. What would be your kind of response to that or thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. I think what I'd say is, is that there's a promise of this kind of fulfillment, but it is not the actual achieving of it is not always possible and isn't possible for most people. So there are definitely some jobs uh, where there is this possibility for emotional fulfillment, for kind of finding meaning. But often even in those jobs, people report that there are bits of the job which don't really line up with that. I guess um, sort of passion jobs, professions style stuff. A lot of people will say, you know, I, I love teaching, but I hate this kind of um, particular acts of bureaucracy, of metricization, of management styles that I find reduce the kind of relational, expressive, emotional aspects of the work. And then, of course, there are the ways in which this freedom, emotional expression, togetherness are promised at work, which is just structurally unable to fulfill that work, like in a call center, for example. And the role of technology is also important here. So there's increasing use of monitoring, and there's also kind of the possibility for part automation of that work. So scripts being extremely responsive to what customers say. So ways in which that even the possibility for relationality, for emotional connection in that precarious emotional affective work is deteriorating all the time. Mm, There's a bunch of things you said there that I want to zoom in on. Let's start with the piece around bureaucracy. So obviously over the last few decades, huge swathes of public services in the UK have been privatized like railways and energy companies. But then you also have things like the kind of civil service fast stream that plucks bright young graduates, you know, from Russell Group universities, uh, supposedly trains them up in how to kind of effectively manage people and then, you know, pushes them out to manage big areas of um, of public services and others, often with very little experience of having done that beyond reading lots of books about how good management is enacted. So what kind of additional bureaucracy, I guess, comes from this new, more managerial style of, of work? And when did that shift really occur? Yeah, that's Really, a really important point, and I think, especially relating it to outsourcing is uh, crucial. I think one of the things I try to talk about in the book is that I think there's a tendency of academics to jump to examples from the university when they talk about changes in work. And you could definitely point to loads of examples in the university where metrics, things like the research excellence framework and things around student recruitment have added this extra layer of bureaucracy. 
But I wanted to talk about one example in the book, which was not academic, because I think it possibly captures more of what this feeling of bureaucracy might be like, which was looking at how an outsourced part of transport for London, an outsourced kind of railway aspect of that is managed in terms of this new styles of public management. Um, so I went to an RMT branch meeting who represented workers working on that line and spoke to people there. It was really, really fascinating. One of the things they found the most fascinating was that I think this is a nice kind of microcosm of, of the general tendencies of new work, but also of this what it's like to work in these kind of outsourced, contracted and subcontracted aspects and how that kind of there's a kind of parody of customer service that really is partly about breaking down workers' power. So people might have seen on the tube that there are those quote boards, right, where workers put up, you know, like little quotes. Sometimes they're extremely cheesy. Sometimes they're very profound. Sometimes they're just generally quite lovely on tube boards. But on this kind of bit of the outsourced network, every day workers are sent from the head of the franchise quote to put up themselves. And it's all the same quote. It's all standardized. So that thing which had originally been about spontaneity, about relationality, about a human connection at work between workers and passengers, between workers and each other, becomes kind of um, this management director from above. And once they've written it, they have to take a photo and send it back to head office. I think really that sums it up for me. It's this kind of capturing of what is that scope for autonomy that is possible to some extent, which can never be, I think, fully co-opted. There's always that possibility of that work, but how this new style of management attempts to do that. Um, and there are some other fascinating stories as well. So, you know, you're supposed to have exactly the right brand of gloves and be wearing the right kind of clothes. And there's a story of someone kind of high up going around and saying, you can't wear those gloves and taking the glove from the workers on the platform. So I think that's a kind of, yeah, the sapping of kind of vitality and, and the frustrations and how they're kind of, um, they produce inefficiencies and perverse incentives and are just, they suppress what could be human or relational about work. And maybe this isn't a question that you can answer, but I'm sure it's on listeners' minds. Is there evidence that they produce more efficient companies? I think efficiency is an interesting one. This is thing I'm trying to wrestle with in my PhD because I guess there's a kind of efficiency is used as a, in some ways a kind of magical word. You can obviously, to some extent, measure it, but it's kind of quantifiability slips away in some ways, right? Um, there's a kind of magical quality to it. So you can create a story about efficiency. One example I think about is Elon Musk going around to his employees and basically arbitrarily firing some of them, right? He could possibly say, I do this for efficiency reasons. And because there's an asymmetry of knowledge, we don't know. It might have effects. So it's entirely possible that there are these things might be more efficient. I guess the in terms of public sector outsourcing, it seems like the case that it is efficient is not particularly strong. The franchise model on, on the railways, again, from the, some of the examples in the book, is that um, there are these quite strong, perverse incentives because you have the way the contract is signed means things have to be done a particular way. And you hear, of course, all of these stories about public outsourcing where the NHS is charged a ridiculous amount of money to order a pen or a plug or whatever it is. So I think in the case of this kind of public sector stuff, it seems like efficiency is not really what's going on. What's really going on is thinking about how can these things which are public and therefore in some ways because they're really important public infrastructure, how can they make brilliant guaranteed income streams for all kinds of companies? So it seems more to do with that. But in general, it's 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 a tricky one. I think I'm, I'm wrestling with the kind of way in which efficiency becomes this kind of magical word that's used. 
Mm, kind of like productivity. It feels like they're in the same bucket. I want to move on to something else, but just for listeners who are interested, we did a great episode with Sahil Dutta of Goldsmiths on uh, managerialism, which is in the archives, and also a really good episode with Cat Hobbs and others on the kind of privatization, nationalization, efficiency conversation. So just a little plug there for previous episodes. But back to you, Amelia, you write that there is a mainstream narrative that work used to be something that was considered harmful and dangerous, but now is is seen as something broadly good, which meets our needs. And the government certainly seems to think this when they say things like it's the best route out of poverty. So what's wrong with that story from your perspective? I think there's something very sneaky in that move from the government, because what they're kind of saying there is, well, there's a few aspects which are troubling. One is that they say it's always better than unemployment. And the reality is, is that the government sets political conditions what unemployment is like to a really significant extent it sets what the benefits are it sets what trainings are available it sets the conditions of life if you're unemployed so it's a kind of sneaky ideological move and the other thing is that the empirical data doesn't necessarily bear that out either right um we know the number of people who are in work who are on receipt of universal credit is really high and how the cost of living and low wages kind of compound each other such that work isn't this kind of automatic reward, even in the government's narrow sense of what would count as a reward. In terms of, I guess, that myth, I think it's interesting. I wrote the book during the pandemic, but some bits were more before the pandemic and some were sort of in it. And the myth of old bad work, I guess, is the sense that, you know, in the past, we had all these terrible, dangerous aspects of work. And now we've reformed them all, it's all gone. And it's not that there's nothing to this. If you look at the stats on the number of workplace injuries, workplace deaths, there is a decrease, a really significant decrease because of legislation, because of trade union activism. But there's a kind of plateau, right? And that's really, really significant. Things have improved, but the sense that that all the problems are in the past is, is not the case. And there are still so many workplace injuries and there are still so many stresses and um, psychological and physiological harms of work that are downplayed. I think the pandemic has thrown them into a bit of a more sharp relief than before. But I still think the sense in which work could be harmful, a work under current conditions could be harmful is, is downplayed in this kind of myth of progressively improving, endlessly improving work. Yeah. So would, are you basically kind of saying that some of the ways in which work continues to harm us are kind of more uh, in the kind of mental health space and that that's something that's kind of really underestimated and not really measured. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. But I think even the physiological harms of work are kind of downplayed. So if you think about, for example, the physical stresses of cleaning or the physical stresses of care work, which often involves kind of physically moving people around, right? These are often people say we don't really have uh, manual work or not in the same numbers. And therefore, there are physical damages at work. But if we think about the risks of being on a till all day, the physical harm that might do to your hands and your wrists, even typing under poor conditions, those are downplayed too. But I think I think mental health is a really important one aspect too. And again, we have had, this is what people always say, the conversation on mental health has changed. And in some ways it has, and in some ways this isn't a small thing. The fact that people feel able to disclose things in a much greater number than, you know, even a decade ago, it's really powerful. But I think we're in an interesting moment because it seems like there's a possibility for firms to co-opt mental health languages to um, and discourses around mental health as a technique of management. 
And there's a worry around this kind of workplace wellness agenda, which co-opts that narrative and, and hides questions of power and control. You can imagine a workplace, for example, saying, we were offering you free online CBT, but we're not going to give you control over timetabling, or we're not going to improve working conditions. That's something I find really troubling. And I guess we always see the, the way in which working conditions are blowing from how they develop in the States. And there's definitely a kind of wellness agenda around health stats, biometric data from company phones and other digital devices. And the way these are used by employers is, again, really, really worrying. You could see how the rise of remote working, as useful as that can be, and, and as, as much as workers have the right to be able to work under, you know, which conditions of their choosing, you can see how that offers an opportunity for the rise of a um, new frontier of control disguised as sort of wellness agenda. I wrote something about this for the NEFC, actually, uh, in a few months ago about this kind of relationship between the well-being industry and the well-being economy and and work. And a previous NEF organizer, Becky Winton, who was on the podcast, gave a really great example of a workplace that she was organizing in where they kind of introduced mass redundancies at the same time as, you know, saying something like, but we'll give you all beanbags to sit on while you think about it. <laughs> um, and it feels like that's just quite a... Um, a stark example of how often these, as you say, these kind of more structural changes are kind of superseded by superficial ones, like having sleep pods at work instead of just letting you go home, go to bed. That piece also on the kind of digital, the digitization of it and remote working in, in COVID feels like it's whole other podcast, right? A whole other podcast of its own in terms of how we think about uh, bosses extending their reach into people's homes. I've heard all kinds of stories about people being forced to leave their webcams on all day and bosses installing spyware on computers and all this horrifying stuff, which as we know, has actually been taking place in, in sectors like the kind of unregulated domestic workers space for a long time. So one thing I wanted to pick up is, you know, that in the start of the book, a 2017 poll found that two thirds of people in the UK claim to love their job. So how does this square, I guess, with the idea that work is this kind of harmful thing that is not in our best interest and, and is actually, as you say, kind of doing some form of violence physically and, and mentally. Yeah, I really wanted to start with that problem in the book, because I think that's a tendency on the side of people who want to criticise work, people who are you know, anti-capitalist, people who say there's wrong with the way we're working currently, to say, well, everyone just obviously hates their job, which the figures, it seems, it well, they change and we can point to all kinds of contradictory impulses in different polls. But it seems to me broadly that not everyone hates their job. In fact, you know, as this figure suggests, a lot of people enjoy their job. So what do we do with this? And I think one thing I try and do in the book is say, in a way, it's not really about people's sense of fulfillment or happiness. It's about whether work allows people freedom, right? Um, Simone de Beauvoir makes a, a similar point. I'm sure I am borrowing hers uh, in the second sex, where she says, I'm not interested in the happiness of women, I'm interested in, in their freedom. And that's one way to, to kind of square that circle is to say, well, people might, you know, enjoy their jobs, but that doesn't mean there are problems with it. Another way to answer that question, I think, is the way in which that promise of happiness at work is never really fulfilled for the majority of people and actually is the thing itself that ends up making people feel unhappy or denies them that freedom, that sense of possibility. I think Lauren Ballant's notion of cruel optimism is kind of helpful here. We have the sense of the thing that's supposed to bring you happiness is a thing that stops you, kind of you get tied in that kind of web. And I think I also wanted to with those figures to kind of have a slightly cautionary tale about the sense that you 
could just, everyone is unhappy and we just need to coordinate things. There's actually a lot more that needs to be done to rebuild power and to change consciousness. Um, we want to think, oh, it's about to kick off everywhere. And I can see why that's an important belief because it would be great if that were the case. But I think things might be more complicated because the belief that work is the most important site for self-expression, for freedom, for finding yourself, for acting in the world, that the market is where you do that is really, really a strong belief. And we're up against really profound social conditioning. And a lot of people might not like an aspect of their job or might not like their manager or might think, okay, it's just this bit. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a, this whole sort of anti-work consciousness just under the bonnet ready for us to go. Of course, there are all of these really interesting Reddit threads and communities where people are trying to reduce the amount of time they spend at work or trying to drop out of work and I think those are really really interesting and really fascinating I've been watching them with, with great interest but I think we also have to be honest with ourselves about the numbers here and that the figures that the people interested in those are probably much smaller than the people who are on the kind of here's how you do a side hustle here's how you do a second side hustle pages right um so it's yeah I didn't want to overstate the case if that makes sense yeah it certainly makes sense I think kind of I guess what's been going on for me while you're talking because I've also done some research into this for other purposes and it seems that at least in the research that I did one of the things that came out was that the highest levels of I guess like happiness or fulfillment were among people who were freelance or like self-employed and that that perhaps intersected with this idea that you mentioned earlier of kind of autonomy and agency in the workplace but then my brain went from there to to what extent is this whole conversation about whether work is supposed to be a place where you can express your deepest desires or not quite a middle-class preoccupation? Like are people for whom work is actually about earning just enough money to be able to kind of like meet your basic needs and that of your family? Like are those kind of people having this, these kind of conversations or is this something that is just like very much existing in like a certain social milieu and excluding a lot of other people? I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think that's a really important consideration, especially when it comes to some discussions around, for example, reducing the working week, because you then have people clustered in low pay precarious work, particularly women, particularly people of colour, particularly migrants, they are saying, I don't want less hours, I need more hours, and I need my hours to be regular. And especially when the discussion is kind of framed during the pandemic, which was like, people had a lot of time on their hands. They all sat around and like decided to learn a language or decided that they wanted to do something else. And that's true for many people, of course. But then even at the height of the biggest, strongest lockdown in Britain, the toughest one, you still had a slim majority of people going to work in person, right? So there wasn't this moment of, you know, everyone is at home, everyone's, you know, looking at plants and wondering, could we do things differently? Wasn't true for most people. I do think though the sense that one ought to find happiness and fulfillment in the market is um, to some extent a general background belief because of the way everyone is taught to be a kind of entrepreneur of themselves. And you see this in kind of, I would say it's fair to say across most aspects of the economy. And I think there's, there is a tendency as well with some of this with some of the kinds of things about switching off, you know, in terms of like switching off from online and so on, people tend to universalize from their experiences. So you have a lot of journalists and commentators on Twitter saying, you know, it's exhausting to have to be a brand all the time. And in some ways it is, of course, but there isn't that sense of what it's like to treat yourself as a brand if you're 
you know, like a young journalist or a young academic on Twitter versus if you're an Uber driver, where the power your customers have over you and the need to be a particular kind of brand and to behave in a particular kind of way, or you lose your source of income, it's quite different, right? So there's the sense of universalizing from the experience of a sort of narrower group, which is kind of frustrating. But I think that that sense that happiness is found through career fulfillment is quite common. And that pressure, because that has come from management as well, that's come from the social practice we have of you are responsible, your hard work will get you results, you do the right things in your career, and that's how you're rewarded, that's how your life should kind of go ahead. You know, that sort of sense that everyone must be striving to be better all the time. I think that's common across all kinds of work. Mm, I would certainly agree with that. I definitely agree with the idea that it's kind of a background belief that's very much, since the advent of neoliberalism, at least um, in earnest, been like absolutely central to the way that people kind of make themselves into working subjects. We talked a lot about what it's like while we're at work, but you did mention earlier something that I wanted to pick up on, which is where work ends and what happens outside of it. So how does the unpaid domestic work, which is mostly done by women fit into all of this? Is there a place for that in this conversation? Yeah, I, I in the book, one thing I really wanted to think about was how do we define what this thing work is and how is that big contested and who does that leave out? And obviously one aspect it leaves out is work, which isn't legally recognised as work. So sex work, for example, or bits of the gig economy where things which really should be count as work legally are not. But one of the biggest contestations has come from the question of housework. And this sense of what is this activity, which sort of has some similarities to work, but is outside of the wage. And what do we do about it? One thing I really am keen on, and I think it's really interesting, are kind of um, experiments in communalizing aspects of that, bringing that into public democratic ownership. So things like crashes with really good working conditions rather than the model we have at the moment, which is massively overstretched, very poor working conditions, extremely expensive, kind of public canteens, just because the degree of replication that goes on with every household doing the same thing is like as- astonishing. One thing that's kind of interesting to track is that a great deal of that socially reproductive labor is increasingly done in the market. So whether that's takeaways, uh, delivery, you know, Uber Eats, whether that's paying for a nanny, paying for a cleaner. What's really striking is that as the rise of really stickily low wages has continued, you see since 2000, like more and more households buying out bits of socially productive work. It seems to me as soon as they can afford to. So numbers of people have a cleaner. I think in 2014, was one in three households, which is quite a lot. And that had gone up a lot. So a lot of this is done, is bought out on the market, a lot of the socially productive work. So, And sometimes that's forgotten in some of the feminist discussions around it, that actually a lot of this is done and depends on this national and global inequality. So thinking about the conditions of that work when it's paid as well as unpaid seems important. So let's move on from talking about work and leisure to talking about what happens when you have no work and you're unemployed. So how has the condition of unemployment been shaped by government policy and culture? Yeah, I think this is really interesting because unemployment happens most of the time, right? Obviously to really varying extents. But the fact that some people are out of work is really common. What the experience of that state is, is determined by the legislation around it is determined by kind of social ideas social socially constructed notions of what it means to be unemployed the government is responsible obviously for the sort of legal and financial situation and while it isn't 
entirely responsible for kind of social construction. It has since 2008, since in austerity, it has been particularly interested in stigmatizing people who are out of work. You know, I think it's Nick Clegg who has that um, sort of alarm clock Britain stuff. And you have this speech by George Osborne about, you know, how difficult it must be for someone who wakes up to see their poor neighbour inside, not working, sitting around watching telly. So you have attempts to kind of stigmatise being unemployed. And we've seen that, we saw that kind of language of pathology used around furlough too, with government ministers saying things like, you know, people are addicted to furlough, the sense that it's this dangerous pathological state to be dependent, when actually what it is, is a temporary form of assistance for a kind of recurrent feature of the economy. So I find that really fascinating. It's often tied up with shame, and that's not the government by itself, right? There are kind of long historical notions, especially around masculinity. But I think it's very, very interesting that in terms of the way the ideology unfolds, that there is this, again, this responsabilization. It's your fault if you're unemployed. You haven't done the right thing. You haven't trained in cyber. You haven't, you acted badly. You know, you're to blame when actually, you know, it's almost certainly not the individual's fault, right? So that that's the thing which is, I find kind of, again, part of this broader trend of responsabilization and risk and the sense that responsibility is on the workers rather than on government, on employers. Mm, which I guess ties back in with what we were talking about earlier about the kind of notion of the entrepreneur and how that has become pervasive. Let's take a quick step back. In progressive spaces, there's been a bit of a debate around whether the harms of work should be fixed through improving working conditions and pay or whether we should focus on working less, if at all. And I know you've mentioned this in terms of the kind of four-day week debate. So where do you stand on that? I guess it's, it's a false binary, but where do you stand on that uh, spectrum? Yeah, I think I think you're so right to call it a false binary. I think for me, it's interesting because the positions kind of get sort of strawmanned in either way. One is to say, you know, um, you just want everyone to lie around and do nothing. The other is to say, you want everyone to be kind of productivist, working hard. And obviously, some people do commit to either of those views. But I think that's quite rare. I think what everyone in the conversation really wants is a transformation of work in a way. So it's a kind of um, a sense that everyone could have better control over work, more democracy in the workplace, a change of ownership, a change of ownership of capital, a change of ownership of assets, workers having more of a say. So it's, it's, it's work that would look very, very different to how it is now. I think there's a sort of the idea of people doing absolutely nothing is interesting and attractive. And there are all of these, you know, stories of utopias throughout the ages of, of what that might be like, right? And there's a often kind of run through with this fear of that, which I find quite fascinating. So even if that famous fairy tale of this um, magic porridge pot, which produces by magic more and more porridge, so the porridge doesn't have to be made, but it goes haywire and like drowns a village, which I think is really fascinating. There's a sense that there's a worry about not having anything to do or a fear about total laziness. And I don't know where I kind of sound about. I think there's a kind of fear of what would happen if we didn't have the meaning of work. And we might be able to fill it with all kinds of things. But I've always thought, for me, a sort of realistic utopia will be one in which it's not necessarily nothing to do, but there's a transformation of work. So the collective, relational, creative aspects are really brought to the fore and the, the drudgery, the exploitation, the domination recede. 
Yeah. I mean, when you were saying that, it made me think about Mark Fisher's book, Capitalist Realism, and the idea that like, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And it felt like within what you were just saying there about like the porridge metaphor and how we might imagine, like whatever would we do with ourselves without work, it like feels like an extension of that, right? Like we're so ingrained into this uh, system that we can only, the only way we can understand human purpose is through work. But of course, work is by its very nature, something that we have to do in order to stay alive. But if we had other things keeping us alive, then of course we would be able to find fulfillment and perhaps it would be actually fulfilling. Who knows? Let's kind of finish off by looking forward. If all work is to some degree harmful, as we've said, and if it is kind of predicated on perhaps these like problematic notions of who we are and how we should live our lives, where do we go from here? How do we even begin to kind of solve some of the problems you've identified yeah sort us out i think what you just said there about capitalist realism is is really important because there's a sense of um the impossibility of change i think there's something important about the way that utopian stories force us to kind of see through that which is interesting so in the book i argue again against this quite polarized debate within the left about what we should do some people just say we can just carry on doing what we did in the past so more trade union struggles deepening them and then that will solve the problem and i think more trade union struggles and deepening trade union power rebuilding trade union density is vitally important and a condition for success in this but i don't think it's the only thing i think politicizing time is really important and something that will appeal to a lot of people in lots of different ways so and that can't just be this kind of you know we should work less it also has to say time is um this way that your managers exercise control over you and things like around the right to switch off, things around uh, scheduling for people on zero hours contracts is something that is really, really important. The number of people who don't know the shift pattern they'll be working the next week, sometimes they even don't know the next day, is really, really shocking. I think pointing to the ways in which like COVID has shown power relations at work is important as well. So the sense that People were made to go in into dangerous conditions, right? Um, that moment of politicization is quite important. And I think there isn't a quick fix. There are lots of little things we can do that can try and improve workers' rights, workers' power, but it, it's going to be a really long struggle to improve conditions of work and then to transform work such that it doesn't have these negative features that work under capitalism has requires like a transformation in the property regime, right? The ownership regime, which is one of those things which is very easy to say we should do, but it's very hard in practice to do. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like there's just so much nuance around what we've been discussing, especially in relation to how people relate to work, right? Because as you said, right at the top of the show, it's not as simple as everyone loves their jobs or everyone hates it, or even as simple as if you love your job, that's great. You know, it's like every within that, there's all these kind of different sites of struggle and, and places that we need to, to be thinking more deeply. And that certainly is no easy task, but I think we've made a good start on it today. So thank you <laughs> um, for, for joining me for this conversation. It's been really, really great. Um, is there anything else that you want to add, Amelia, that we haven't managed to cover? I, I guess I... I'm always worried that I've been too negative. I think, I think there is. No, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think we have, uh, the things that have changed things in history have been workers organizing together, right? And, and that still is the case. Um, there are many barriers we face, but people have faced even bigger barriers in the past. I think there are ways forward that, um, that we can take. As you say, like not all doom and gloom, there's like lots of great wins and stuff to build on. And I think especially around even just taking the example of the conversation about the four day week, like that is a conversation which has 
has taken root in several organizations who are doing it. I work for one of them and it's great. You know, like there are kind of uh, wins emerging. And I think even having more conversations like this about the nature of, of work and, and how we politicize it, as you were saying, and have conversations within that about things like the climate crisis and economic policy and other things feels like a really important start. Yeah, exactly. And having living examples we can point to and say look it's worked there is so important because that mm. has, it punctures that that capitalist realism right because people will say yeah. that will never work and you say well it's working fine and you know the heavens haven't fallen in um mm. so there's something really important about that these concrete examples that we can either point to as as examples of it working or things we can try and scale and scale that kind of exciting teeming economy of uh, different things of possibilities mm. another work is possible Oh, oh, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> God, I'm, I feel like I'm a lefty cliche. Oh, well, that's what they come to the podcast for. They know what they're getting. But unfortunately, that is all we've got time for this week. Love you, listener, on the Weekly Economics podcast. Amelia Horgan, thank you so much for being with me. It's been a really great conversation. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Where can they grab your book? The book is available directly from Pluto's site. And at the moment, I think until the 17th, there's a 50% discount so now is a good time to buy it if you want to grab one and I guess yeah follow me on Twitter <laughs> yeah what's your Twitter handle just my name at Amelia Horgan the one and only Okay, good. That's good. Brilliant. That is it for today's Week at Economics podcast, but we'll be back soon with more. Don't worry. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The Week at Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.